Well, it's another opportunity for us to look in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. And so I'd invite you to turn there to Matthew 13. We're looking at the kingdom parables and Christ, his sermon to those then is our sermon to us now. And we want to, as we just sang together, see Christ and we want to see him in the scripture. We want to hear his word to us in view of what he is teaching us today from the parables of then. Those parables are our parables for us to see life through in terms of events, in terms of the times we're in. It's always been that way for all Christians. They are a deciphering key for us to explain where we are now in view of where things are going. Things are going somewhere. They're going towards an end, towards a, a judgment and Viewing life in view of the end is how we can find hope and peace and security and confidence to live each day in view of what's, what we're called upon in the mission that we are in. Things seem bleak. It could be a, oh, the sky is falling sort of uh, mood for you in your hearts uh, with different things that are happening around us. There are unprecedented things like uh, the former president's uh, house being raided by the FBI to summon documents. And I don't know all of what has been found there or, or what was alleged to be found. But it, as one um, podcaster I listened to, it better have been pretty serious because uh, this is unprecedented um, in terms of the event of that. Um, it's never been done before. And I think we're going to see more and more of that in our culture. Well, we've never seen that before. We've lived the life that we've lived. And this is a new event, a new day. A new precedent setting, new normal. Uh, we live in the cancel culture, and perhaps the governing authorities over us are making a statement to say we can cancel even that if we want to. We can cancel former presidents, we can cancel whatever we want that we don't like. When is the government going to take its aim and a bead on the church? Uh, on that level, I don't know. Uh, this feels more and more like. Uh, Third world government or totalitarianism, not sure. I've, my whole life I've been living in the warning of, well, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Perhaps more now it's here. But the Bible is the same no matter what. The commands are the same no matter what. The parables for how to read day to day and what we're to do is the same no matter what. And so I think we need to ground ourselves in Scripture. These days uh, there have been... All kinds of cultural attacks. It's been said that there's been the destruction of the family, the destruction of um, just human human identity has been um, under assault and under attack. You have uh, the scandalization of politics. Who can we trust? The lying media. You know what? What are we to believe? The scandal of the hospital. Like what? Who's telling us the truth on what to do and not do? the undermining of law enforcement with defund the police, the threat for burning cities. All of these things are part of our recent and real history. However you fall out on those topics, those agendas, those are real. And it is a world that has fallen. And so because we live in a culture filled with 7 billion people, most of whom are fallen, 
most of whom are sinners, born sinners who are unredeemed. We're sinners, but we are redeemed. We have the lights turned on in our hearts and minds to be able to see that God is in control even in a world that has fallen. But most everyone else doesn't see it that way. We're the remnant and and they need to be called to come in to Christ's kingdom. But what are we to do with a society like this where we live in a world that is Satan-saturated in its thinking? It just is. It doesn't mean that the whole world feels and acts and walks like the occult. It's just it is lied to by the father of lies. And most of the world believes his lies. So how are we to represent Christ and his kingdom on earth in a world like that? We live in enemy territory. We live behind the lines. We do. We're going to heaven. We know how the story ends, but how are we supposed to accept society for the way it is now and operate in it accordingly? We have an enemy. He is here. There are enemy agendas against us. There are enemies who will want to shut down the church. There are enemies who will want to shut down the message of the gospel because everything that we say is contrawise to what's going in, going on, again, on the inside of the hearts of people who are unbelievers. Everything we say awakens guilt. Think about that. You represent the provoking of guilt in the lives of our society. And we want to win people to Christ. We want guilt to turn into repentance, right? But... In the meantime, we have to live this way. We have to live in this world. And coming to a clear acceptance of the world that we live in and coming to a, um, a settled conviction for how we're supposed to navigate it is so important. And that's exactly what Jesus is laying out in the parable that we're going to discover and search through this morning. The parable we're looking at is the second parable in his series of parables in Matthew 13, and it's verses 24 through 29, or 30, 24 through 30. That's the parable. And then if you pick things up a few verses later, verses 36 through 43, you have the explanation of the parable. I'm actually going to preach both. I did it first hour, so I'm bound to do it second hour. And both sections need to be held together because the second section explains the first. And we need all of it. We need to understand what's going on. This parable is begging this question. What has gone wrong with this world and what are we to do about it? In theological circles, it's called this. It's the conundrum of conundrums throughout the ages of church history. It's called the problem of evil. The problem of evil. Why are things so bad if God is so good? How can a holy God who loves us, who's in control of all these things, allow for or be the cause behind the the sinful circumstances that we live in? Put more personally, you could say it this way. People say, well, I don't have a problem with the problem of evil. But do you ever complain about the life that God has given you? The hand that you were dealt? Oh, God. You're very good, so why in the world have you allowed this to happen to my life, this circumstance? Woe is me. That is wrestling with the problem of evil. My job circumstance, my family circumstance, my life circumstance, my health, my future. Uh, These things are all touching upon our need to reconcile why God is God, even and who he is as in control and loving and good, even as we live in the middle of a Hard circumstance. This world that we live in 
is explainable by the parable, and we need it explained. We need a settled acceptance with the assaults that are around us so that we don't turn a conundrum where we're going, why, Lord, into an accusation where we're going, why, Lord? You see the difference? We need our hearts to be held in check. The why is always going to be there, but the why needs to turn from a question into bowed submission. You know, the whole gospel of Matthew, I themed it when I started this study years ago now. I don't know how long it's been, but I titled it, We Need a King. Jesus is Messiah. He is King. We need to come to a settled acceptance of his lordship in our lives in the midst of bad, hard circumstances. Well, first point I'm going to make is explaining the parable under the concept of the problem of evil. Let's explain the problem of evil as we read through the parable. Listen as I read verses 24 to 30. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Well, we're going to kind of have story time now. This is where the kids come around, you know, the fireplace, and we just gather around this parable. It's very explainable, and it's meant to be story-like so that it's easily understood. The kingdom of God, we know, is invisible to us. Heaven is invisible to us. It's put on display through the gathering of the church. But what Jesus does here in Galilee is he's been pushed out into the boat so he can reach the masses and speak the parable to them. He's using agrarian or agro or agricultural um, word pictures to explain in the simplest terms what is going on with the world around us. What's gone wrong and what are we to do about it? That's really what he's doing here. So this is the second parable. It's explaining the kingdom. It's bringing things to a mixed crowd of Galileans. You have some believers, but most are not. He speaks of a farmer spreading good seed. Most in that crowd would have said, I understand what it means to own property. I understand what it means to sow seed. And that's what he's saying. There's good seed and a good farmer, a landowner. That's what you have. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's good seed being sown in a field. Verse 25, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So the plot thickens. You have this event where men are sleeping. It's the picture of complete abject vulnerability. When you're asleep, when you're shut down, things can happen. Most crime happens in the dark and at night. Uh, Because people are operating under the cloak of darkness covertly. These 
people that came in are represented as an enemy that came in, an enemy that came in not to do harm to the farmer, not to do harm to his servants, but to corrupt the field. They want to mess up the livelihood. They want to mess up the crop. They want to, uh, to sow some poison in, uh, into what's going on. And the seeds that are the tares are called darnel, the darnel seed, or darnel. And they are a seed that grows into um, a weed that is indecipherably similar to the wheat until the head comes um, um, to full fruition. When the head is there, then you can see the difference between the wheat and the tares. But it was to go after this man's livelihood to do him wrong in view of the bigger plan. We don't know why that's unimportant, but it is the fact that it is what it is. Verse 26, it says, So when the plants came up and bore grain, then weeds appeared also. So the first stage of the heads appearing proved that something had gone wrong. What happened? Why are things the way that they are? We're the one who sowed the seed... And what happened? So they were sleeping. They were completely unaware of this enemy activity. They had no idea what was going on. It's the idea of them almost being in a Rip Van Winkle state. Like they've been asleep a long time and they're waking up to this reality that they are very confused by. So you have a covert operation. And then secondly, you have a confusing outcome. And I want to make clear with the analogy that the analogy is different in this parable with the seed than... Um, the one before. With the four soils, the seed was the word of God. And we know that to be true. And the four soils were the four different heart conditions that are the four reactions to the word of God. Three are unbelieving. One is a believing a reaction. We went through that for three weeks. This, on the other hand, um, represents seeds being sown as believers into the world. The seed is the believer. The, the wheat is the fully grown believer. And the, the tear or the weed or the darnel that is um, sown in is our unbelievers. So you have, a, you have God who is a sower and you have the devil who is a sower. We're going to unpack that. But you have this dynamic going on. Weeds and seeds are believers and unbelievers. So it's a confusing outcome. Look at verse 27. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master... Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? They want to make sure that the owner of the field is responsible for what's happened, not them. (laughs) This is the responsibility moment. Didn't you sow good seed? We weren't the ones who did this. They are douloi. They are slaves. They're loyal to their master, but they are acquitting themselves of the responsibility of what's happened. The servants are incredulous, not wanting to be blamed for what's going on. So it's your field. Ownership is reiterated here. Wasn't this your field that you did this in? How then do we have weeds? This makes no sense to us whatsoever. Well, the master's response is very striking. Look at what they say. Verse 28, he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? So he's saying, in essence, while you were sleeping, I wasn't sleeping. I'm aware that an enemy did this. This is 
a reflection of what the master knows that the servants have no idea what's going on. The servants are sleeping. The servants are unaware of what the master knows. They're not privileged to have that data. So while they slept, the master's seeing this go on. He's not surprised by what's happening whatsoever. And these servants accept what he says. They're not concerned to go after the enemy. They want to mitigate the damage. So then do you want us to go and gather them? Do you want us to gather the weeds out? Do you want us to save what we can of the remaining crop? Servant's practical solution is countered by a practical reason. And it's 180 out different with what he says, with what they expect. Look at verse 29. But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. If you pull these weeds out prematurely in the process, because the root system is now intertwined, you'll destroy the whole thing. You'll destroy the whole thing. They want to practically get out there. They want to react. They want to, you know, storm the castle, make things happen, change what's going wrong and write, write the ship right now with some deliberate, immediate action. But you have the wheat and the tares. You have sort of the good seed and you have the bad seed that's, that's intertwined and intermixed in this moment. So what are you supposed to do about it? And the master says, leave it be. Let it ride, let it ride. Because verse 30 says, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned and gather, but gather the wheat into my barn. You got to just let it go. You let it, let it grow all the way up together for the ultimate outcome where then the reapers can come and do what they need to do at the end. It's a lesson to stop trying to force outcomes, and it's a lesson to accept what the master has already accepted. It's the phrase, it is what it is. This is so hard to live this way. Let's just take a moment and pause and let it sink in. It's so hard to live this way, especially for me. I like to just force things and go after stuff. It's so difficult for my temperament, but I just want to superimpose that on you just in case you might be a person like me. It's hard to rest. It's hard to rest in God's plan to really believe that God is working all things together for his good, for our good, to be more like Jesus, to rest, to realize that, that sin has been sown into our lives, into our worlds, our world, Right? We are the kingdom of God. We're the remnant. But there are unbelievers and dynamics that are happening because of sin all the time, all around us. So what are we supposed to do about it? Well, verses 36 through 43 are the explanation. And I want to go quickly there to try to bring this home to our hearts. Because verse 36, look at this. It says, then he left the crowds and went into the house and the disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Again, I'm putting this first parable, this parable, Jesus' second parable in the, in the lesson, but I'm putting it under the theme of the problem of evil. So the disciples are now saying, the believers, the ones that are regenerate with the Holy Spirit, they've heard him teach. Jesus comes in off the boat. He wants a nap or he wants a break. He wants to eat something. He's going into his house. He wants to get away. The disciples follow him in. 
They're the remnant. They're the believers. They're the ones with the ears to hear. And they're saying, you've just laid out that there is a big problem that we're supposed to live with. How are we supposed to do that? So how do we answer the problem of evil? How do we do this? That's what they're asking. That's why they're running after him for an answer. And he's in the sequence of Matthew. He's taught a few other parables. We're going to tie all this together in the weeks to come. I'm not going to skip those. I'm going to go back to those. But I figured it would be helpful just to go right to the answer. Explain to us what's going on. First of all, who's responsible for our enemies? It's the responsibility question. This is the big like foundation stone for answering what's going wrong in our world. You got to get it right to know that someone is responsible for this. Look at verse 37, he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. So Jesus right out of the gate wants to distinguish two different sowers. You have the son of man who is sowing good seed and the good seed are believers and it's in the field that's the world. And contrary to that, you have Satan who is the second sower and he's sowing evil followers that are in this world. Now, a lot of people will transpose this parable into the church and say, in the church, you have the wheat and you have the tares. You have the believers and unbelievers. You have believers and you have people who look like believers, but really aren't. And that's true. And we can apply it that way, but keep it broad for a second in terms of the world. In the world, you have 7 billion people that are following a satanic ideology. Everyone isn't practicing overtly an occult religion, but Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers He's the God of this world. He is the one who sets the agenda for the zeitgeist zeitgeist, or the spirit of the age, how people think. That is satanic. And you just need to embrace that and understand that, that we are the emissaries of light. We are the remnant. We're the people who have been given the privilege to believe. We are the jars of clay that have this treasure in us. As 2 Corinthians 4 says, that we give out for people to believe. And Jesus is the one who sowed this in our hearts. He made us sons of the kingdom, verse 38, out of the good seed. We are these sons, contrary to the evil one. So what does this all mean? It means that Jesus is not responsible for things being sinfully bad in this world and in our lives. Jesus sows good seed because he is a good God. The question of theodicy, how can a good God allow, you know, bad things to happen or allow sin in our world that he has to punish? Doesn't that make him bad? Well, Jesus is immediately targeting that saying, no, it can't be that way because he is a good God. He is the son of God. He's speaking of himself, but he's speaking of how God is good. And so as a sower, good comes from, good seed comes from a good God. Jesus is holy. So only holy things can come from him. This speaks to the theological title, the impeccability of Christ. Christ cannot sin. For Christ to sin, he is going 180 out from his character. His character is perfectly pure and holy. In his humanness as being fully man, he had the choice to sin, but he never would do it. That's how you have to reconcile it. He would never do it. Jesus doesn't have an unholy motive or thought by design because he is holy God. 
God is not a man that he should lie. Speaking of just God's holy character, Numbers 23, 19, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is saying, I'm the light of the world. You're not gonna follow wickedness if you follow me because I'm the light. First John 1, 5, this is the message we heard from him, from Jesus and proclaim to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness of all. That also reflects on Christ. Titus 1, 2, he cannot lie. First Timothy 6, 16, God dwells in unapproachable light and has dominion over all things. Hebrews 4, 15, Jesus is the sympathetic high priest. He's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but in every respect, he was tempted as we are, yet without, what, sin. Jesus cannot sin. James 1 is one of my favorite texts about the holiness of God which speaks of temptations. When trials come into our lives and they turn into temptations in our hearts and sin is rising up inside of us and we want to blame God for what's going wrong to us in our worlds, in our world and in our life. That's James 1. This is what verse 13 says to that. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Why? Why can't you blame God for what's going wrong with you in your life? For God cannot be tempted with evil. He has a moat around him of holiness and he himself tempts no one. Sin doesn't come to God and it doesn't come from God. God is holy. Jesus is saying the son of man is the good sower. He calls himself the son of man. It's the title he most uses of himself throughout his ministry, and that's reflecting um, of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel seven thirteen. I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of the heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. There it is. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him, this is Jesus, the Son of Man, coming in glory. To him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus is sitting in this house... He's talking to disciples and he's saying, what's going on? He's saying, listen, first and foremost, as the foundation to what I'm saying, as the pillar to what I'm saying, good seed comes from the son of man. Holy things are coming from Jesus. So where does evil come from in our world? Well, not Jesus, not Jesus. He's sowing good seed and you are the wheat. You are the believers. The world's cursed, condemned, 7 billion, and it comes from a different sower. What sower is that? That is the sower who is the devil. This is verse 38, the second half. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Their father is the father of lies. He's the dark deceiving villain who means them harm. He means our world harm. And there couldn't be a greater distinction between the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one. There's a striking disparity there. This could lead us into great discouragement. You say, I'm not discouraged by this. I know God's got it all, but how do you live day to day? And this is convicting for me as well. How do we live day to day in view of this kingdom dynamic? We're the remnant. We're the small group. We're the minority. We are the smaller population um, that is God's population versus everybody else. Is Satan winning? Is Satan winning in some kind of cosmic battle between Jesus and Satan? Is Satan winning and we're on the losing team? Preseason just started. My team played. It's, it's going to be a losing team. It's going to be a losing season. I could allow my heart to descend. I could get discouraged even thinking about it right here. 
right? But, but as a Christian, you can't live that way. We shouldn't live that way. We're called to see the end. We're called to live the battle in view of the end. We're called to live our lives that way. Don't just live in terms of the present circumstance. Don't live in terms of the woulda, coulda, shouldas, or I wish I would have done this differently, or I wish I had this now. Live your life today in view of the end and work backwards. It's how we come to believe that we are more than conquerors. We're victors in Christ Jesus. There was an ancient heresy that's called the ransom theory of atonement where people in church history, beginning with the teachings of Origen in 4th century, they came up with an idea of how to solve the problem of evil with a ransom theory. It's the idea that Jesus and Satan are in competition with each other and Jesus had to win the battle um, by dying on the cross. It essentially claimed that Adam and Eve sold humanity over to the devil at the fall, and it required that God would pay the devil a ransom to free us from Satan's clutches. God, however, tricked the devil into accepting Christ's death as a ransom. He said, look, I'll make this ransom for you. And for the devil didn't realize that Christ could not be held in the bonds of death. So once the devil accepted Christ's ransom, his death as a ransom, the theory concluded that justice was satisfied and God was able to free us from Satan's grip. The point of all of that is this. It's the idea that Jesus and Satan are in this cosmic battle and we don't know how it's going to end. We don't know how it's going to work out. So God had to intervene and trick the devil and say, hey, will you um, accept Jesus' sacrifice? If, if, if he pulls that off and rises from death, then I get the people back. Uh, you know, and so he had to dupe Satan into a negotiation strategy to win back his church. That's all garbage. That's all untrue. That's just using philosophical mumbo jumbo to try to figure out um, a way around the fact that God really is in control. He is in control of all of this. He's in control. How do we put together the problem of evil? Well, we're still working on that, but he's in control. He is sovereign. He is sovereign. First Corinthians fifteen fifty seven. the end of that glorious chapter about the resurrection of Christ and how when Christ is raised and we're all raised and God reconciles everything with the new heavens and the new earth. Paul says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are supposed to live in light of the fact that we are victorious. The end is sealed. We're watching the movie in real time, but it's like we've watched it already once before. We know the end and you're watching it again in light of the end. That's how you live your Christian life with peace and joy. Is there a cosmic battle that's going on? Yeah, there has been. It's the battle of the ages between Christ and Satan. It's just we know the end. Satan's fall was allowed. He raised up with himself in pride and fell, and he created an insurrection in heaven where a third of the angels followed him to their doom, their sealed fate. There was the fall of man. Satan tempted Eve into disobedience. Sin was injected into our world. It's causing chaos and destruction. Satan describes himself in Job 1 and Job 2, standing before God saying, I've been roaming the earth, going to and fro. First Peter chapter 5 says he's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In the Old Testament, all of the witches, all of the idolatry, all of the divination, all of the necromancing, all of the false worship, all of the idolatry is satanic. He makes false teachers for the church. He tempted Christ face to face in the field. 
the wilderness. He's the leader of the demoniac. He's the um, progenitor of the soul-binding legalism that was known as Phariseeism that we've been learning about. He went, Satan entered into Judas Iscariot's heart, and he also caused Peter to be sifted as wheat and denied Christ three times. All this was satanic influence. Satan is involved in every divisive measure measure that was ever put against the church and is ever um, present within the church, always. Satan preaches a false gospel, an antinomian gospel that says there's no accountability for sin. What you do in this life doesn't really matter. Everybody really is going to go to heaven after all. There's no accounting for what's done here on earth. The church doesn't matter. You can just come and go as you please. Liberalism is just a political party. So don't judge anybody for their position. Ultimately, Satan is going to be leading a revolt in the end, and the Lord's going to destroy him on the final day and cast him into the lake of fire forever. Is this real? Do we wrestle against flesh and blood and principalities? Yes, we do. We're in a battle. We're called to resist Satan. We're called to refute Satan and false doctrines. And we're called to fight the good fight of faith, but not with a mindset that we might lose. We know the end of the story. We do. We accept what Jesus accepts, that there's a battle. And we're called to be part of this fight in the theater of war, which is our world. And it proves that we are overcomers. And you see that phrase in the book of Revelation. We're those who can resist and refute and prove our legitimacy because we stand firm to the end. So what are we supposed to do with our enemies? Are we supposed to fight or wait? What are we supposed to do? We've answered who's responsible Now, what are we supposed to do? Jesus is not responsible. The devil is. There is a real war. We know the end of the story. So we're supposed to just wait for that or fight and wait. We fight with this view in, in our minds. Verse 39, the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Let's stop there. Harvest time, the end of the age. Everything we do is done in view of that, the harvest time. Remember the master wasn't surprised by how we got here. He wasn't asleep when the weeds were sown. He said, don't interrupt the process. Let it grow together. Let the plan take its natural course, almost like it's bleeding it out of our world. Let it all go. From our end of things, it's very difficult to understand why God would allow it to happen this way, but he has. And he says, you need to come to a settled contentment that things are the way that they are for his greater purposes. Is God morally responsible for sin in our world? No, never. It's impossible for him to be. At the same time, did he allow for these things to happen for his greater purposes and glory? I think the answer is yes. Remember Joseph, after he'd been sold into slavery, the end of his life with his brothers, he said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
Acts 20, verse, verses 28 through 30 is where Paul is addressing the elders at Miletus, the elders of Ephesus. He's going to go all the way to jail. He's going to Roman imprisonment. He's comforting them. And he's saying, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He said, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul isn't saying, look, let's try to make a church so foolproof that we will not have any wolves inside. We won't have any problems inside. No, he's saying you need to accept the reality that you are in this battle. Now, he had said he spent night and day with them for three years, crying and giving them scripture. And he's leaving them now. He's leaving them now with a reality check that even from them, their own selves, even from that band, there could be people that come up and rise up with false teaching to destroy the unity of the church. He's saying you need to be alert and ready for that. But ultimately, All of this has to be subdued under this last point, which is we have to leave the justice with God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Leave it to God. Recognize that when people attack you, they're really attacking Christ, not you. You're not the source of their agenda. I mean, they may think you are, but they're attacking God. And you gotta just live shielded in that. And we love people. We're called to love our enemies, but hate the world. We're called to weep over lost souls, but recognize that God will judge them if they don't repent. We're called to answer with grace, always speaking the truth in love, but we're called to never compromise the truth ever. We're called to be angry at sin, but sin not. We're called to be contending earnestly for the faith, take, faith taking every thought captive, wrestling, for truth against the devil, but we leave vengeance with the Lord. You can't be ultimately offended because you're not the creator. God is the creator and the creation is the one who offends the creator. You leave it with God. You leave judgment with the Lord. Psalm 73, the comfort of the psalmist when he said it was a wearisome task to understand why the um, wicked prosper. And then he went to the sanctuary of God and he discerned their end. Verse 17 of Psalm 73. Truly, they've set themselves in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Psalm 1, the wicked are not so. They're like chaff in the wind that drives away. They will not stand in the judgment. They have to answer to God, and you leave them with God. Verse, back to our text, verse 40, the weeds are gathered and burned with fire. The Son of man, verse 41, will send his angels. They're the reapers. They'll gather out his kingdom. Even in our church today, we can't ultimately decipher who is wheat and who is a tear. We see the fruit, but we can't see the root. We have to leave it to God. Our finite brains cannot ultimately understand justice until we leave it with the Lord. What's wrong with this world? Well, understanding this world in view of the end reconciles what we can't reconcile in our own minds. What is the cause of sin? Is it God? No. The causes of sin are the ones who are sinners. Do you see this? It says he's going to gather, verse 41, the causes of sin. The cause is not God. It's unbelievers, unrepentant people. 
all lawbreakers, people who love anarchy, people who hate accountability. Does that sound familiar? People for whom hell is coming, who will not repent. God will deal with them in verse 42 and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Look at verse 43. There could be not a greater disparity in the white spaces between two verses. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The disparity is great. There are people who are perishing. They're going to hell in a perpetual city of darkness, perpetual pain. They have a resurrected body to death, so they're in pain forever. They're weeping. Why? Because they're crying over the fact that they missed their opportunity to repent in this lifetime. That's the weeping. The gnashing of teeth is the anger, and they're mad about it. They're mad about it. They feel ripped off. And then they go from anger again to despair and anger to despair and perpetuity. That was awful. It's awful to consider it. It's awful to consider standing before God as an unbeliever. It's worse to consider being an unbeliever in hell where you have offended an eternal God. So you're paying an eternal price throughout the ages of hell forever and eternity. It's terrifying. The only way you can quell this angst with what has gone wrong in our world and people going to hell is to see it from heaven's vantage point. Heaven's vantage point is the only answer we have for the problem of evil. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of of their father. Do you know when you'll understand why God let things unravel the way that he did, why he allowed for the evil one to sow the tares into our world? We'll understand things as clearly as we possibly can once we're in heaven. And we look back and we see God's glory on display for what he allowed to have happen. His will be done. We'll understand it from heaven's vantage point, not here on earth, not fully here on earth. It'll make sense to us in the eternal rather than the temporal. God's attributes are on display. For God, the end truly justifies the means. He's the only one for who that really applies Finally, the last phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Have you heard what Jesus has said? Ultimately, what Jesus is saying is we need to have a settled acceptance that things are the way that they are and they're playing out the way that they're playing out. And the sooner you accept that, the better off you'll be. Secondly, bow to King Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the point of the book of Matthew. Matthew is preaching to Jews for them to believe. It's the Jewish gospel of the four gospels. He is presenting Jesus as the Messiah King, the anointed one set apart, just like David was before, set apart with anointing oil. Jesus is the Messiah, the true Messiah, King of kings and Lord of lords. Bow to him in humble acceptance that things are the way they are because God has set it up to be that way. And trust him with the end in view, with the end in view, where God will exact judgment, separating sheep from goats in the harvest and harvest us for all of eternity. The masses swarmed, but the remnant went into the house. The masses were on the beach. Let's enter into the house with Jesus in bowed submission and say, okay, we understand. We might not be able to get our heads all the way around the problem of evil, but we understand in bowed subjection to you why things are the way that they are and they're for your glory so that we can submit to you and trust you that you're working all things out to the end.